Maybe seat him. I invite you to turn with me again in your copy of God's Word uh, to our New Testament preaching text this morning. You can find our passage on page 816 uh, of the Pew Bibles in the rack in front of you. Uh, we are in Matthew 11, verses 1 uh, to 24 today, verses 1 uh, through 24. Uh, we spent last three weeks in Matthew 10, of course, leading up to this. Uh, Matthew 10 is the teaching section where Jesus instructs and sends out his disciples uh, to go out as apostles uh, into an, a, a hostile world uh, and to share uh, the good news of the message of Jesus. They are to expect opposition as they go. And as we switch now from a teaching section to a narrative or descriptive section, uh, we find Jesus' words come true. And his uh, messengers, his disciples, encounter uh, opposition as they go. In our text this morning, we see a couple different ways uh, in which those who hear the message of Jesus oppose it or maybe a little bit softer, disagree with it. Uh, it confronts them in different ways. Uh, so that's where we're going to go this morning. Before we do, let's read our text. Matthew 11, verses 1 through 24. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went out from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What, do you, what, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, but more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the fiddle for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you go with me again in prayer? Our Lord, with these heavy and sobering words ringing in our ears, we turn afresh unto you. We pray deeply and ask that you would reveal your son Jesus to us in these words. And that those of us here that have doubts, you would answer them. Uh, Those of us here who are despairing, you would address and comfort us. Those of us here who are just purely disbelieving, you would show us the truth of your son and the truth of his gospel. I pray for every one of us today, you would turn our eyes and our ears and our hearts fully upon you, seeing you, We would believe this hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We all have unmet expectations in life, don't we? We all have things we want to happen. Expectations of people we know and love. We have hopes and dreams of places or events or relationships or vacations that we want to go a certain way. And then lo and behold, something happens. Someone says something. Plans change. The the money doesn't come through and we are faced with unmet expectations. Sometimes those can be huge in our lives. Sometimes they can be relatively small, but we are expecting to have for lunch when we get home today is burnt, or we forgot to turn the oven on, or the people invite us over, cancel, and so we deal with unmet expectations this afternoon. What, what do we do when people or places or events don't live up to our expectations? And we can be disappointed by that, of course. We can be saddened. We can be deeply discouraged, can't we, if it's something more significant, if it's a job, it's a a friend, it's even a church, we can be discouraged. Sometimes our unmet expectations can be so serious, we become disillusioned with the people or the thing or the institution itself. In our passage this morning, Jesus confronts his hearers, and I believe he confronts us, with the reality of unmet expectations. And he asks us essentially to consider what we expect of Jesus and have our expectations of him gone unmet. Because when we look at this passage, it seems that everyone in it who's not Jesus has expectations of Jesus that aren't met by the actual Jesus. And so they have certain doubts. They have certain discouragements. They are disillusioned when they meet Jesus for who he really is and not who they expect him to be. All of those responses lead down the road to disbelief. What I want to call you to this morning is a faith that trusts Jesus for who he is, not 
for who we want him to be. Faith not in who we want Jesus to be, but faith in who he really is. I want to show you who he is in our passage. We're going to see different forms of disbelief. All of them come out of unmet expectations. So I'm going to give you three forms of disbelief that all come out of unmet expectations. The first is doubt. We see this in verses 2 to 6. Particularly, we see that John the Baptist doubts Jesus. Look back at our verses. Uh, Verse 1, Jesus has finished the instruction and now he has moved on. More preaching and teaching. And so we're going to get a series of interactions he has. A series of places he goes and people he speaks to. First, he uh, uh, is approached by disciples of John the Baptist. So we've sort of seen John the Baptist on the scene early on. Uh, now he's gone. We don't know where he's been. Jesus or Matthew tells us here he's in prison. We're going to come back to that in a couple chapters. We'll learn more about why he's in prison. But he has a question for Jesus. And his question for Jesus is, essentially, are you the one who we're supposed to be waiting for, or is there someone else? That's quite a question, isn't it, from John the Baptist. This isn't just somebody that just popped on the scene out of nowhere, who had no idea who Jesus was. We're going to see in a moment, John the Baptist is the greatest of the prophets. And somehow the greatest prophet in the world of the day doesn't seem to know who he's prophesying about, or he knows who he's prophesying about, but then when he sees what Jesus does, all of a sudden he begins to doubt, this can't really be the guy I was talking about, right? (laughs) Why would John the Baptist, the greatest of men, doubt? I think the answer is here in, in the text. I think the answer is actually the context of the passage Where is John when he begins to have doubts? He's in prison. You can imagine what it would be like to be in prison for your faith or or not for your faith. A lot of time to think, right? A lot of time to contemplate your decisions. A lot of time to contemplate justice, what what has happened to you. A lot of times for John to wonder, I've been prophesying about the king who is to come and rule And the king's here, but where am I? I'm sitting in prison, an unlikely place for the prophet of a king. John expected something, and he has gotten something entirely different. And he expected a seat of power as the guy he's prophesying about comes to rule, and instead he's stuck in prison, wondering about Jesus. Before we get to Jesus' answer, I do want you to learn something here about doubt. If John the Baptist can have doubts about Jesus and God, then so can most of us, right? What I want you to see is what John does with his doubts. He has doubts about Jesus. So what does he do? He runs to the world that knows nothing of Jesus to try to answer his doubts? No, of course not. What does he do? He goes straight to Jesus, He takes his doubting heart and his doubting question and he goes to the very one that he has doubts about. We can call John a doubter in these verses, but we can also call him a faithful doubter. He is a a model for us of when, when we are having doubts. What do we do with those? Where do we go with those? John the Baptist shows us to take them straight to Jesus. 
Jesus could have laughed at him. He could have rebuked him. What does he do? He actually answers John's questions. He doesn't answer him straight away. Jesus almost never answers anything straight away. Uh, John's question, are you the one who is to come? The answer, of course, is yes. Or shall we look for another? The answer there, of course, is no. But how Jesus answers is he tells John's followers, go back and tell them what you have heard and seen. Go back and describe what you have seen me, Jesus, saying and doing. He is pointing to what he's done. He's pointing to his deeds. And look how he sort of lists his resume of actions uh, these past few months in his ministry. He says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. That's all pretty impressive, isn't it? That's all pretty powerful, pretty wonderful stuff. He's healing, he's cleansing, he's raising, he's preaching. But this isn't, this, these aren't just wonderful things that Jesus does. He knows his audience. He knows his hearers. And he knows that they are expecting someone in particular to come, the one prophesied as the Messiah throughout the Old Testament. And so Jesus' answer is essentially to say, I am the one who performs the signs that all of the prophets have told you to look for. For example, the prophet Isaiah says this, Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus could have just said yes and sent the guys back. Instead, he sent them with proof. He said, look around. See, everything that I have said and done, it shows forth to you that Jesus is the Messiah who has come to usher in the kingdom of God. Now, this sort of answers John's question, doesn't it? But it still lingers for John the Baptist. Well, if you have come to do all of those things, why am I still stuck in prison? Why am I languishing here? I mean, I want to read you the words of John in his Uh, opening sermon preparing the way for Jesus. Uh, Listen to these words. Here are his expectations when Jesus comes. He says in Matthew 3, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Speaking, of course, of Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I think John is asking the question, where's the justice here? (laughs) Where's the righteousness, right? Where is your righteous anger if you are the Messiah? Look around, John the Baptist is saying, the bad guys are winning, right? (laughs) Look at the rampant sin in the world around us. Where is your judgment? Where is your vengeance? Where is your recompense? Just aren't you supposed to just burn it all to the ground and take the good ones with you? Jesus confronts John's expectations with the reality. And the reality is this. Jesus comes first to offer the gospel to all who have ears to hear. He has come to preach the gospel to the poor. He has come to live and minister to the desperate, to the needy, 
to the outcast. Jesus comes not first with the actions of judgment. He comes first with the actions of grace and kindness and mercy. As Peter will write in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. It's probably what John the Baptist is thinking. What's taking so long, Jesus? But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's as if Jesus is answering John the Baptist and saying, I have begun a mission and a kingdom in humility and grace and mercy. And I will continue my humble and gracious work until the time of judgment. He's going to get there. We've already read verse 24. Judgment is coming. But Jesus now is a friend of sinners. He is patient with sinners. He offers over and over the grace of his gospel. And here's where the the rebuke comes for John and maybe for some of us. Verse 6. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Does a patient, kind, and gracious Jesus offend you? Sounds almost backwards, doesn't it? But are you impatient with his righteousness? You just want the fire to fall. Jesus challenges us to reexamine our expectations. Are we still patient with sinners? Are we still ready and willing to endure opposition? Are we ready to keep humbling ourselves over and over and over again? I wonder if your unmet expectations about whatever, about your spouse, about your job, about your family, about anything else, is actually can be traced back to unmet expectations about Jesus. Isn't he supposed to set all this right by now? (laughs) Haven't I waited long enough with a bunch of other sinners? (laughs) are our unmet expectations in this life just really unmet expectations we have for Jesus? And he challenges John the Baptist and he challenges us to see him and believe in him for who he really is, not who we want him to be. Jesus addresses John's doubts. But when he's done with John's followers, his disciples, we see that the question comes up, if John the Baptist doesn't get Jesus, does anybody get Jesus? <laughs> Look at our second, our second heading, our second point, and is the second form of disbelief that Jesus confronts. It's the, his generation that dismisses him. If we have doubt, number one, we have dismissing him. Uh, number two, in verses uh, 7 to 19. As John's disciples go away, Jesus turns and he speaks to the crowd. So presumably the crowd is watching as John the Baptist's disciples are sort of mildly rebuked and sent away by Jesus. And it appears that the crowd now has questions. Wait a second, wait a second. You just rebuked your number one prophet, (laughs) John the Baptist? What's wrong with him? And Jesus answers, and really verses 7 down to verse 15 It's sort of like his great defense of John the Baptist. It's the statement that Jesus gives that will sort of stay throughout time of who John the Baptist is. This is kind of the the crucial passage if we're to understand him. It's a very complicated passage. A lot of debated verses. I'm going to give you some just easy handles to hold on to. We're going to move through it pretty quick. 
But who is, who does Jesus tell us that John the Baptist is? Because if we understand who he is, then we understand who Jesus is. So first, who is John the Baptist? He's the one who prepares, verses 7 and 10. He prepares the way for Jesus. We get these two questions that sort of eliminate false answers. It's like Jesus is telling them, you didn't go out uh, to see uh, uh, someone who was weak out in the wilderness. No, you, that's not who you went out to see. You didn't go out to see someone pampered and wearing fancy clothes. No, you, you know who all of you went out to see in the wilderness. And you know it was a prophet. It was the true prophet. In verse 10, he defends the work and the prophecy of John the Baptist by quoting a verse from an Old Testament prophet, Malachi, a verse that is promising that God will send ahead of him a prophet to prepare the way for the Messiah. So according to Jesus, John the Baptist is the one who has come to prepare the way for the Messiah. That's our first point of who John the Baptist is. Second, not only does he prepare, he points to the Messiah. Verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Okay, this point's pretty clear, right up. John the Baptist is the greatest born of women. This is, of course, uh, referring to all the people up to that point, probably making the comparison about prophets. So as the prophets have gotten closer and closer to Jesus, they're getting better and better of telling us who he is. John the Baptist is now the greatest of the prophets. So he's so great. But then the second part of verse 11, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. So John the Baptist is the greatest, but then the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. If you're confused, so was I on Tuesday when I was reading this. What is he saying? How do we understand the greatness of John the Baptist? He is a great prophet because what do prophets do? They point to something or someone. So all of the prophets point to the Messiah who comes. So John is the best one to point to Jesus coming. However, once he has come and brought in his kingdom, the greatest of those in his kingdom of Jesus and the least of those in the kingdom are all better at pointing to Jesus than John the Baptist ever could be. Does that make sense? The least in the kingdom of heaven who knows Christ, who knows his gospel, is greater at pointing to it, showing who Jesus is, than John the Baptist himself. It's like when you were growing up and there was that, that old man in your neighborhood, in your house, who had that body part that could predict the weather, right? Uh, you Maybe you had the, the, the guy with the knee, right, and the... the the knee that gets flamed up means we're going to have snow in three days, right? Or like the, the little pinky is throbbing, which means it's about to storm and rain on us, right? And they got that right once out of ten times, and they had sort of legendary status, right? That, yeah, that, that old guy, he can predict the weather that's coming, right? Today, if I asked everyone in this room, what's the weather going to be like this afternoon? Every single one of you, from the greatest to the least, would pull out your phone and tell me exactly what the weather is, right? We don't need the guy with the throbbing knee to tell us the weather anymore, right? What Jesus is telling us is that the least in the kingdom now shows and points and testifies to who Jesus is greater than anyone in the Old Testament. It means that your neighbor who doesn't know Christ doesn't need the great Isaiah to come and explain Jesus to them. No, your witness is actually greater than his. You know Jesus. 
you know the gospel. This is the grounds for really the great commission that is to come to send out all in the kingdom to bear witness to the gospel of grace. John the Baptist was great at pointing every one of you that knows the Lord is even better, is greater in his kingdom. So to reset, who's John the Baptist? He prepares, he points. Verse 12, he provokes. Here's one of the hardest verses to translate in all of Matthew. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. The word violent appears twice, or or, uh, uh, two words that are from that same root word for violence appear twice. So what in the world is Jesus talking about in these verses? There's a lot of options. I'm going to give you uh, what I think it is pretty succinctly. Uh, The first question in verse 12 is, how is the kingdom of heaven suffering violence? Or your Bible might have a footnote. You could also translate that as Or has been coming violently. Those are very different things, right? Either the kingdom is suffering violence or has been propagating violence, right? They they are the victims of violence or they are the aggressors of violence. Those are very different things, right? I think what he is saying is that the kingdom of heaven has come and it's come violently. Not that the servants in the kingdom of heaven are to exercise violence, Jesus puts that idea to death much later on. But that when the kingdom of God comes, the effect it has on a rebellious word, world excuse me, is violence. He said earlier that he comes last week to bring a sword, to divide even members of a family. And so the impact of a rival kingdom arriving in King Jesus is violent in the hearts and lives of those who oppose him. But then we take that same word, and we look at the second half of the verse, and we see that the violent take the kingdom of heaven by force. Does that mean disciples aggressively pursuing the kingdom of heaven? Or does it mean the opponents of the kingdom of heaven grabbing them and opposing them violently? I think it's the second option. I think the violence is describing the people that grab and take the, he- the kingdom of heaven By force, that's describing those who have put John the Baptist in prison. All that to say, we have a struggle going on in verse 12. We have a violent struggle between the forces of God and between the forces of evil in this world. And that defies the expectation of John the Baptist that as soon as Jesus comes, everything will be put to right. He's saying instead, no, it's not an instant victory. In fact, it's a long struggle. It's a struggle that can be described as violent. So who is John the Baptist? He prepares, he points, he provokes. Who does he prepare for? The coming king. Who does he point to? The coming king. Who does he provoke? Well, opposition to the coming king. So now that we know who John the Baptist is, who's Jesus? The king who has come, right? The question that John the Baptist has asked, are you the one who is to come? Jesus answers again. He's not the king you are expecting, but he is God, Yahweh himself, who has come to subvert and defy every one of our expectations. He has come to bear the sword. He has come to bring in a kingdom that one way, one day will be in fullness and peace. But now, in the leadership and under the banner of this king, there is opposition 
and there is violence. And if you continue to not have the proper expectations of life following Jesus, then you will be disappointed and you will maybe even dismiss him as the crowds do. Because when he gets to the end of this complicating teaching, he gives us a very clarifying parable of these spoiled kids playing in the marketplace. These kids that are assuming they're they're playing at a wedding, but when the flute is played, they don't dance. The flute is the joyous instrument of the wedding. People celebrate and dance at weddings, but no one's dancing. But then if they're playing at a funeral and they play a dirge, it's a very sad song. What do you do at a funeral? You don't dance, you mourn. But the kids playing in the marketplace don't do either one, right? They're like, they're like Goldilocks, right? And the three bears, you know, this chair is too hard. This chair is too soft, right? That's the kids. Well, that, that song's too happy. And well, that song's too sad. I'm not going to do any of it. I'm not satisfied with anything. And Jesus says to the crowds, y'all are like this. Because John the Baptist came with a funeral message of repenting and dying to yourself. You didn't do it. And then Jesus came with a celebratory message that he's going to feast and he's going to eat with tax collectors and sinners and you are to rejoice. But you didn't do that either. You didn't do any of it. You're, you're, you're hypocrites. You're inconsistent. You say you want the Lord, but you get him in John the Baptist's message of repentance and you won't do that. And you get him in Jesus' message of rejoice and you won't do that either. You all know it as well as I do. If somebody wants to reject Jesus, they're going to find a way. They're going to find a reason. They don't want to repent. They don't want to rejoice. They just want to do what they want. What is the expectation of the people for God? Just stay in your lane and leave me alone. (laughs) Just stay over there and leave me. I don't feel like repenting. I haven't done anything wrong. I don't want to rejoice either. There's nothing all that much to be happy about. Just leave me alone. And John tells us, sorry, Jesus tells us that he has come to change everything. He has not come to leave you alone. In fact, he has come to radically redeem and transform you. I wonder if you have expectations that Jesus would sort of leave you alone. Go convict somebody else today of their sin. (laughs) I'm done with it. I don't want to rejoice because you tell me to rejoice always. I, I, I just want to wallow in my whatever it is. The coming king changes everything. Jesus approaches the doubts of John the Baptist and his followers. He approaches the dismissal that he gets from the crowds washing him. And then he, he ratchets it up to one more level and he rebukes the cities in verses 20 to 24. This is a, this is a short final point. The cities defy Jesus. We have doubt, we have dismissal, and finally, we have defiance. He names two different groups. He kind of tells these two parallel accounts. We're going to smush them together. He mentions these three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. These are all just northern Galilee, right around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. It's where Jesus has done most of his ministry uh, in these first couple years. What has he done amongst them? He says in verse uh, 20, where most of his mighty works had been done. So he's going, traveling through the cities. He's preaching and teaching. But he's also doing mighty works. What is he doing, you ask? We'll go back to verse 4. He's 
giving sight to the blind. He's healing the lame. He's raising the dead. On and on. These are the the mighty works of Jesus. The reason Jesus is performing mighty works is not so that we're impressed that he can perform mighty works. (laughs) He has come and his message and the message of John the Baptist is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And these are the signs that the kingdom is at hand, that the king is here. He's rolling back the effects of the curse and of darkness. He's giving us a glimpse of the fullness of the kingdom with life and healing and peace within it. He's doing it bit by bit, little by little, so that we see and behold the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as Jesus preaches the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he has one application. He said it over and over again. The application is to repent. This is the message of John the Baptist in chapter 3. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the message of Jesus in chapter 4. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the message of the disciples that Jesus sent out in chapter 10. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It seems obvious, and yet, what characterizes these three cities that have seen everything he has done? No repentance. They did not repent. They they ignore and defy the very message of Jesus. And so he tells them, it will be worse for you on the day of judgment. It'll be so bad, he's going to give three cities that it's actually going to be more bearable than it's not as bad for them as it is for you. And he names some pretty bad cities. (laughs) He names Tyre and Sidon. These are just cities that sort of symbolize the enemies of Israel. They're no longer there. And of course, he names Sodom the infamous city for its immorality that is destroyed in the wrath of God. You think that's bad, Jesus says. It's more bearable than it will be for you on the day of judgment. Why is that? Well, though they had the prophets and the law and the the foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus, these three cities have seen Jesus himself and they still refuse to repent. They know more, and so more is expected of them. The more we know, the more we are responsible for. Their expectations went unmet, but they refused to believe that Jesus before their very face. So where are you at this morning? Are you defying Jesus Are you dismissing him? Just stay out of my life. Are you doubting him? And maybe not taking those doubts to Jesus. These all are forms of disbelief that arise out of our unmet expectations. And when we're honest with ourselves, we're probably a lot like John the Baptist, right? We expect a warrior king who's going to come right now and he's going to give it to my enemies with the sword and he's going to vindicate me and the church. And that's happening now. What's the reality? The reality is he comes in humility. The reality is the Messiah King comes first with healing, with grace, with life. He is a humbled and suffering King. He is an offense to the arrogant and he gives grace to the humble. 
He's a mediator. He goes between God and man. He endures suffering in his body. He endures torment in his soul. He endures the very death and burial on the cross itself. He satisfies the just wrath of his father. It's only really by his death and resurrection we can call him a friend of sinners and the one who reconciles us to God. One day, yes, He will come in judgment. But today, he preaches his gospel to the poor. He calls us to repent and to believe. Is this who you expected? He's not who you expected. But he is mercifully and graciously so much more. Let us trust Jesus today, not for who we want him to be, but for who he really is. Let's pray. Our Lord, we we ask that you would forgive us for expecting you to be who you are not, and in fact, of people that want you to be something different than who you are. Lord, in in our flesh, we are impatient. We are judgmental. We are self-righteous. We want your mercy for us, but your justice for others. Lord, grant us the patience of our Lord. Grant us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe the grace and the mercy that has been shown to us is so needed to be shown to others. Give us the humility to believe and trust in you, even when the days are hard, when the opposition mounts when we grow discouraged, if we are even in prison ourselves like John the Baptist. Give us the faith to trust and believe you for who you are, and in you repent and rejoice. Amen. We're going to close uh, with a hymn of of response, a hymn of uh, committal. What does it look like in our lives to repent and to believe in Christ? It's hymn 585 Take my life and let it be. Would you stand with me as we close?